0: I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting this episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. And you can get started right now with a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Well, the price of gold finally back up to 1900 an ounce today. In fact, we settled just below at 1899.20, up $18.70 on the day. Silver also added about 22 cents an ounce, closing just below $28, 27.97. The US dollar index headed in the other direction. It was down Closing at 89 spot 66. This is the lowest the dollar index has traded since early January. Also, this is the highest the price gold has traded at since early January. And I think we're very close to a major breakout in the price of gold and breakdown in the value of the dollar. Now, we did have a couple of catalysts for today's move up in gold and down in the dollar. One was a statement from Chicago Fed President Charles Evans. And Evans basically pledged his full support for the Fed's current reckless monetary policy. He said, and I quote, I have not seen anything yet to persuade me to change my full support of our accommodative stance for monetary policy or our forward guidance about the path for policy. And also in commenting about inflation, he said that the recent rise in US inflation is unlikely to lead to the kind of undesirably high inflation that some notable economists have warned about. Obviously by saying notable economists, he's not referring to me, he's referring to some other economists. But I think it's interesting that number one, he said that inflation is unlikely uh, to be undesirably high. He didn't say it won't be, he just said that it's unlikely, which means he understands that there is a possibility that the kind of inflation that we are going to have is going to be the highly undesirable kind. And the problem is the Fed has no way out of that. There is no cure for that disease. So if we get the unlikely possibility that Evans still leaves the door open for, if we get that, well, then what do we do? Well, then we're completely screwed. So basically, according to Charles Evans. He thinks it's unlikely that we get undesirably high inflation, but we better pray that we don't get it because he's got to know that there's no way the Fed can deal with it. But I think he is wrong to claim that undesirably high inflation is unlikely is wrong because the Fed was dismissing similar concerns that were raised you know, by me or maybe by other people in 2005, 2006, 2007 about the housing bubble and about a potential financial crisis. I mean, I did that video on Janet Yellen where one of her San Francisco speeches specifically addressed the fact that there were people who thought there was a housing bubble and that there was a reason for the Fed to be concerned. And she dismissed those concerns. She said there is no housing bubble. And even if there was, it wouldn't hurt the economy if it popped. So the Federal Reserve, both under Bernanke and Yellen, have a very bad track record of appreciating the problems that confront the economy. So the fact that the Fed is today just as dismissive of the inflation risk as it was back then with respect to The risks from the mortgage crisis and subprime, I don't know why anybody would take any comfort in the Fed's position on inflation. But I think when he mentioned this, this again impacts the markets because one of the things that has kept the price of gold from moving up even more and keeping the dollar from moving down even more is the idea that the Fed is going to be tightening policy sooner rather than later. And here now you have a Fed president coming out and saying, absolutely not. We're not worried about inflation at all. We think all these economists who say that inflation is going to be a problem are wrong. It's transitory. And so we're going to keep the monetary pedal to the metal. I fully support the current monetary policy and all the forward guidance. So that was the initial spark that kind of got gold out of the red because gold started today down. In fact, at one point overnight, it was down about $10. But by the time the U.S. market started trading, those declines had been cut quite a bit. Gold was only down maybe 2 or $3. But as soon as we got these dovish comments, we saw the price of gold move into the black and it pretty much stayed there. But then it gathered momentum later in the day After we got some economic number, both consumer sentiment number and new home sales. And I want to start with a new home sale number because this was a number that really disappointed Wall Street. They were looking for 955,000 new home sales for April, and that would have followed the 1,021,000 from the prior month, which was a very strong month. Now, that month was revised down to 917,000, again, these are annualized numbers, but the number for April came in well below estimates. In fact, the range of estimates was from a low of 915,000 to a high of 1,040,000, and instead we got 863,000, so well below even the lowest in the range of consensus forecast. And so this again is bearish for the dollar, And bullish for gold because it shows a slowdown in new home sales, which shows a softening in the economy. And also a lot of jobs are the result of new homes being sold, of new homes being purchased. So to the extent that that is slowing down, then that does not bode well for employment in that area. In fact, we got the consumer confidence numbers that came out at the exact same time, and that was a miss as well. The prior month also downwardly revised, originally reported in April of 121.7. That was revised down to 117.5. The consensus for May was 119.5. We ended up at 117.2. Again, Below the lowest estimate, the range, the consensus forecast for this number was from a low of 118 to a high of 124.2, and we missed even the low end of estimates. In fact, if you look inside the numbers where you really saw a collapse, in fact, I think when it comes to consumers' intentions to buy appliances or homes, It was the biggest collapse, I think, on record. But the three categories that saw major declines, this is intention. Are you planning on making this purchase? And the big drops was in homes, automobiles, and appliances. So why is it that Americans all of a sudden do not believe they will be buying these items in the future? Well, because the prices have skyrocketed. Real estate prices have soared. Automobile prices, used car prices have gone way up. And so people can't afford it. And obviously, if you can't afford to buy a new home, well, you're not going to be buying the appliances uh, to go in your new home. So you now have rising prices destroying all of this demand. You see, the government created all the demand by printing up all this money. And they send money out to people. And yeah, people want to spend it. They want to buy cars, they want to buy houses. The problem is you can't buy cars and houses that haven't been built. The Federal Reserve prints money. They don't print merchandise. They don't print homes or appliances. Somebody has got to manufacture those things. And it certainly isn't Americans. Americans are sitting at home cashing their unemployment checks. Well, when they want to take their unemployment checks to a automobile dealer, well, there's no cars there. They weren't making any cars, and the rest of the world didn't make enough cars to ship to the United States, so they're not here. So prices are going up, and so now the rising prices are pricing Americans out of the market. I mean, that is why real estate sales are collapsing. I hear a lot of people trying to say, no, 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 it's not because of rising prices. That's not why sales are going down. It's because there's not enough inventory. Well, there's not enough inventory because the cost of building homes has skyrocketed. It's the high price of materials. It's the higher price of labor. It's these skyrocketing construction costs that are preventing more homes from being built and you can't buy homes that don't exist. So again, it's not a shortage of homes. It is a surplus of money. And because everybody has all this money and they want to buy stuff that nobody has produced, Now you're starting to see the prices really going up, and this is what is pricing Americans out of the home market. It's pricing them out of the automobile market. And also, if they're not buying homes, well, then there's no point in buying appliances, but those appliances are getting more expensive too. But it's not just these big ticket items that Americans are going to be priced out of because the price of every single item that Americans buy is going way up. And so the same thing is gonna happen on a smaller scale for all of that merchandise. As prices go up, more and more Americans are just not going to buy this stuff because they can't afford it. Now, what is the Federal Reserve going to do? Is it gonna just send bigger stimulus checks? Hey, prices have really gone up. People can't afford to buy stuff. So now we need even bigger checks. Well, that's not gonna work. It's like a dog trying to chase its tail because now they send everybody bigger checks so that they can pay higher prices. And now the prices go even higher because now people even have more money to bid them up because the reality is printing money doesn't create wealth. It doesn't produce goods and services. It just produces money to bid up the prices for goods and services. And that's exactly what's happening. And this is how Americans are experiencing the inflation tax. As prices soar for all goods and services, Americans now can afford to buy fewer goods and services. I mean, they may spend more money, but they're spending more money buying less stuff. And the fact that they're buying less stuff, that is the tax. You see, if it was an income tax that financed all the stimulus, then Americans would buy less stuff because they had less money, because the government would have taken their money in taxes and would have left less money for individuals to go buy stuff. But instead, the government didn't do that. The government just printed money and gave it to some people to buy stuff. And those people bid up the prices. So now everybody else can buy less because everything costs more. Now, I think as the reality of this inflationary spiral really sets in and people start to ignore uh, comments by people like Chicago Fed President Charles Evans about inflation being transitory, about those economists who are warning us about an inflation problem, how those economists are wrong. No, those economists are right. It's the Fed and the economists over there that are wrong. That's when the price of gold is really going to go ballistic. And I think we're getting very close to that point. And I know that a lot of people have been frustrated about gold's failure to make an even bigger move in the face of this massive increase in inflation, this obvious increase in inflation. And again, you know, I have been forecasting a breakout of inflation for many, many years. And so far we haven't had it. I mean, we haven't had deflation, right? All those guys warning about deflation were wrong. We never had a single year where the cost of living went down. It went up, but it didn't go up in a spectacular way. Now, of course, the CPI didn't really capture the extent to which prices have been rising. So that's one of the reasons that we weren't able to see uh, the inflation picking up was because the Fed was able to disguise it. In fact, these skyrocketing real estate prices that have priced so many Americans out of the market, these prices don't even show up in the CPI. They're not a component. Right back in the 1970s, when we did have that high inflation, when real estate prices went up, those prices were in the CPI. After all, people buy houses. So why shouldn't the price of a house be a component of the CPI? I mean, it should be, but it's not because the government wanted the CPI to be a smaller number. So it wanted to exclude rising home prices from the cost of living. But what they ended up doing is they substituted owner's equivalent rent for home prices. And they claim that that was just as reliable. But of course, it's all BS because what the hell is owner's equivalent rent? Supposedly, they do surveys and they ask people, hey, if you had to rent your house from yourself, what would you charge yourself? And then you got to, I don't know, figure out a price. And then maybe a year later, they ask you the same question And they try to figure out how much more you're going to charge yourself this year than you were going to charge yourself last year, except you're not charging yourself anything. And how do you know? I mean, people are guessing, pulling these numbers out of a hat. I don't have any idea really how it's calculated, but I know that it's something like 40% of the CPI and it's complete BS. And the numbers probably don't even come close to approximating the increase in actual rents. And they don't come close to approximating the increase in the cost of actually buying a home rather than renting the home that you own from yourself. But if we had a more reliable, a more honest CPI, we would have seen a bigger increase. But now we're seeing it. We are seeing incredible price increases across the board in a broad category of consumer goods. Inflation is everywhere. And, and so to me... This is the subprime mortgage meltdown of 2007. This is, hey, for years and years and years, I was forecasting the problems with the housing market, the housing bubble, what was gonna happen when it crashed. And then when the subprime meltdown happened exactly the way I said it was, that was the moment that I knew for sure that I was right. I mean, I thought I was right. I was confident, but I didn't have any concrete proof that I was right until subprime blew up. And once it blew up, then I know for sure that what I was saying was correct. But again, everybody who is oblivious to the problem, even though the pin had just pricked the bubble, since they weren't in a bubble, they didn't even see the pin and they were in denial of the subprime problem. Well, the same thing now with inflation. We now have real-world evidence of soaring consumer prices, basically validating what I've been saying over the years that we had a big inflation problem and that we were going to get soaring prices. And now it's just begun. And just like when we got the subprime crisis, the initial reaction by the powers that be in the Fed is to dismiss the significance and say there's nothing to worry about. Well, they said it was contained with subprime And now they're saying the same thing about transitory inflation. But I think the markets are going to figure this out soon enough, just like they figured out the subprime problem. They were in denial for a while, you know, like a deer in a headlight, but eventually they got hit by the car and that's going to happen. And I think we are very, very close to a major, major move up in the price of gold and silver by the way and a big drop in the dollar and that's just going to light a fuse under this inflation fire and it is really going to erupt
1: traffic jams tailgating pile-ups Ugh, the joys of driving how could it get worse the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive that's right The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
0: You know, just the other day, somebody asked me a question. He said, Peter, you know, it seems like everything is in a bubble, right? We're in this everything bubble. All assets have bubbled up except gold. Why is that? How is it that every asset is in a bubble but gold, right? Or gold and silver. And and so here's how I answered his question. And I wanted to put on the podcast because I think a lot of people may have asked themselves the same question. The reason that everything is in a bubble except gold is gold is what everything is in a bubble in relation to. See, gold is actual money. It's real money. It's a safe haven. It's a store of value. So the bubbles are in terms of gold the price of real estate, the price of stocks, the price of collectibles, even these cryptocurrencies, right? All these assets are in bubbles in terms of gold. After all, when there's a bubble, when all these risk assets are going up, why would you want to buy gold? Gold is a risk-off asset. Bubbles are about risk being on. People want to speculate. People are getting rich. So why would you want to hang on to a store of value, to a safe haven, when you can get rich in all these risk assets that are going up in price. So gold can't be in a bubble because if the price of gold was also going up, then these other assets wouldn't be in a bubble. It would just be a dollar collapse because if the price of gold was going up as much as the price of stocks and the price of real estate and the price of collectibles, then those prices wouldn't really be going up at all. It would just be the value of the dollar that was going down. But because the price of gold hasn't gone up nearly as much as the price of these other assets, that shows you that these other assets are in a bubble, but the bubble is going to deflate and these asset prices are going to come down, but they may not come down very much in terms of dollars, their dollar price is irrelevant. What they're going to deflate against is gold. So when the bubbles pop, right, that's when you're going to see the price of gold really going up. Even if the price of stocks or real estate or other assets don't come down in terms of dollars, when you see the price of gold soaring, that will in fact be the popping of those other bubbles. And the air is going to come out as... The gold price of stocks come down as the gold price of real estate comes down. So that is how you have to look at it. You know, all these people that are looking for deflation, right? They keep saying there's not going to be any inflation. There's going to be deflation. They are correct. All these bubbles will deflate in terms of gold. But as far as what it means for the average American, he's not gonna see deflation because he doesn't have any gold. He's not buying stuff with gold. He's just got paper dollars. And in terms of paper dollars, it's all inflation. Because the supply of paper money is being inflated. The supply of gold is not. So you got all this paper money being created. So the price of everything is going up in terms of paper money, but the price of everything is going to be going down in terms of gold. And I think the prices that will go down the most will be asset prices. So I think stock prices and real estate prices will fall more in relation to gold. Then will commodity prices, or the price of other consumer goods. So you're gonna see asset prices losing value in relation to goods prices, but you're gonna see both asset prices and goods prices losing value in terms of gold. So it is a complete deflation of this massive bubble, only it's being deflated in terms of gold, not in terms of dollars. Now, I think at some point we will reach an extreme Maybe similar to what happened in 1980, only greater, where you know you had the price of gold up at around 800, which was the peak, and then you had, you know, the Dow Jones down at around 800, but all these asset prices came down. Now some people might say, well, maybe we had a bubble in gold in 1980. It really wasn't a bubble in gold. It wasn't so much that gold was so overpriced. it was that all the assets were so underpriced relative to gold, because in a bubble, right, everybody is greedy, everybody wants to buy risk assets. And so the price of those risky assets goes way up in terms of gold. Well, in 1980, it was the opposite of a bubble. Everybody was afraid. Nobody wanted to own assets. Everybody was scared. Inflation was high. Interest rates were high. So people were dumping assets. So when gold was at 850 and all these assets were so cheap, it wasn't really that gold was overpriced so much that all these other assets were so underpriced in terms of gold because nobody wanted to buy them and everybody wanted to sell them. So if you happen to have a lot of gold in 1980 because you were smart In the late 60s, early 1970s, and you sold these assets when they were very expensive relative to gold, and you loaded up on gold, when all those assets got super cheap in 1980, if you were smart then, you were able to take your gold that held its value and buy up all those cheap assets that got killed uh, when everybody was worried and fearful about the future in this massive recession with very high Uh, interest rates, and high inflation. So I think the same thing is going to happen as the air comes out of this bubble and as asset prices start to deflate relative to gold, they are going to overshoot on the downside by as much, if not more, than the overshoot on the upside. So when gold price just goes ballistic, it goes very, very high, and you don't see a similar move in other asset prices, stocks, real estate, At some point, those other assets in gold terms will be very inexpensive. They will be a bargain. And that's when it'll be time to use your dry powder that you stored in gold and buy those other assets. Or if you had some of that dry powder, not really dry, but in gold mining stocks, because if gold goes way up. I expect gold stocks to go up a multiple of that. That's exactly what happened in the 1970s. The people who loaded up on gold stocks in the 1970s had much bigger profits than the people who just bought physical gold. And I expect the same thing to happen in this cycle. But since the U.S. economy is in so much worse shape today, than it was back in 1980. The bubble is so much bigger. We have so much more debt. The collapse of this is gonna be bigger. The collapse of the dollar is gonna be bigger. I think that the increase you're gonna see in the price of gold is gonna be larger than what we saw uh, during the 1970s. And the collapse in asset prices will be even bigger. So I think people will be able to get even bigger bargains at the bottom of this coming bear market as the air comes out of this bubble during this big run in gold uh, than they did at the end of the 1970s. In fact, the government is already trying to scapegoat others for rising prices and trying to attack the result of inflation rather than inflation because today we learned that the District of Columbia is filing an antitrust lawsuit against Amazon claiming that Amazon is responsible for higher prices. I mean, think about that. Amazon is one of the biggest forces that has been keeping a lid on prices, despite the fact that the Fed's been creating all this inflation. And now the government is claiming that Amazon is violating uh, antitrust laws and gouging consumers. Basically, what the lawsuit is alleging is that Amazon, when it has contracts with resellers, it prevents those resellers from simultaneously offering the same goods that they're offering on Amazon at a lower price on their own sites or elsewhere, which of course makes perfect sense from Amazon's perspective because Amazon is helping to promote these retailers and giving them access to the Amazon customer base. What Amazon doesn't want is for these companies to be able to attract customers on Amazon and then divert those same customers away from Amazon by then offering a lower price on the same product. I mean, that would be a losing situation for Amazon. And so it makes sense to me that if Amazon is going to give these smaller companies access to its customer base that those other companies also agree not to then divert the sales that Amazon helped generate to another platform by then undercutting them with the same merchandise. So to me, Amazon has done nothing wrong, yet you've got the government trying to bring this bogus case trying to blame the company for higher prices. Well, expect more and more of this As price hikes continue to permeate the U.S. economy and more and more companies start raising prices, the government is going to start vilifying these companies, accusing them of price gouging. And all of this, again, is laying a foundation for a repeat of the mistakes of 1970s when Nixon imposed price controls in 1971. I expect similar actions coming from the government in the coming years. And of course, all that means is we're going to have shortages in addition to higher prices, which is another reason that people should stock up on the things that they need now, not only because those things are going to get much more expensive in the future, but because it may be hard to get those things because the government will be controlling the price and therefore limiting the supply. And the only way a lot of people will be able to get stuff will be to buy it illegally on a black market. In business, the key to success is finding your edge and then leveraging it. Well, if you're hiring, that edge is Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. First you post, then you screen, you do the interview and you do it all on Indeed. You get a quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster and then you only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications. And then schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent fast and easy. They have tools like Instant Match, which gives you quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that fit your job description exactly And it includes Indeed's skills tests that on average reduce hiring time by 27%. And you can choose between more than 130 skills tests already on the platform, or you can add your own customized tests and then add your must-have requirements so that you only pay for the applicants that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. If you're hiring, then you need Indeed. And you can get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com/peter. You get a $75 credit at indeed.com/peter. That's indeed.com/peter. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. In fact, in talking about the economy, I thought it was a little bit funny. I was watching this guy. He was an economist or a market strategist from T. Rowe Price, and he was interviewed on CNBC, and he was talking about how bullish he was on the economy, but he was cautious on stocks. And, you know, in my opinion, it really should be the opposite. He should be cautious on the economy, but maybe bullish on the nominal price of stocks. But this guy was so bullish on the economy because he was talking about all the stimulus money that consumers had burning holes in their pocket. He said, I've never seen the consumer so strong. The consumer has so much money and they have all this pent up demand and they're going out and spending money. And so I'm so bullish on the economy because everybody's got so much money to spend. But. That is not a strong economy. These economists still don't get that you just don't print money and hand it out and then you have a strong economy. A strong economy is built on production. What makes the consumer strong is that you have a lot of factories producing goods for the consumer to buy. If you just have a central bank printing money, that doesn't do anything. All you have is money, you've got nothing to buy. And yes, right now they're saying, oh, there's a problem, You know, we have all these shortages. Well, duh, of course we have shortages. We didn't make anything, all we did is print money. And now people wanna buy stuff with all the money we printed and we didn't make anything, so there's nothing to buy and the prices are going up. But this guy still doesn't get it, he's confusing spending printed money with economic strength. There is no strength in the economy. The economy is a complete disaster. And because the economy is a complete disaster, the Fed's going to keep on printing money to try to stimulate it, even though the stimulus acts as a sedative, which means the more they sedate it, the more they have to stimulate it to counteract the effects of the last stimulus. And that is what's driving the stock market higher. So I would not be surprised to see stock prices continue to rise, especially the stocks that have international exposure that are earning money around the world, companies that have a lot of resources, natural resources, uh, raw materials, stuff like that, where you have the ability to benefit from rising prices. You're gonna to continue to see potentially stocks going up in terms of dollars, but what you're about to see is a major decline in US stocks Relative to stocks in the rest of the world and relative to the price of gold. And this is why I think that anybody who's been listening to this podcast really needs to appreciate the degree to which the forecasts that I've been making over the years, while early, have been extremely accurate. And time is running out to take advantage or follow the investment strategy that I am recommending, especially if you are retired or you are nearing retirement. If you want to preserve any chance of retiring, you have got to make these changes because if you don't, it's your money that's going to retire, not you. You're going to be working for the rest of your life because inflation, the inflation tax is going to fall hardest on retirees people who are living on a fixed income because the value of those income streams is going to be destroyed. The value of your pensions, the value of your Social Security. You know, it's kind of ironic, too, that one of the main reasons that the government rigged the CPI uh, back in the 1980s, you know, with the Boskin Commission, which was later. But the main reason that they made these changes in the CPI was so they can cut Social Security benefits without having to vote to cut them because the social security system was in trouble. Of course, it's a Ponzi scheme, right? It's not funded. They collect money in uh, from the people who are working today uh, to make payments to the people who worked yesterday and who have retired. You know, There's no real fund where social security taxes are put aside to be later repaid to the people that made the contributions. No, people work, they pay taxes, the government spends every nickel, and then by the time they retire, the social security trust funds actually have no money because it's all been spent. And so the money to pay the current beneficiaries comes from the taxes that today's workers are paying. And of course, today's workers assume that when they retire, there'll be a new crop of workers that will pay taxes to support them. That's the Ponzi scheme. The problem is there's not enough people after the baby boom to finance the baby boomers. So the baby boom is going to be a bust because the generations that precede them can't carry uh, the load. But one of the ways they got as far as they did is they came up with a lower CPI because every year there's a COLA for Social Security and all the Social Security recipients get an increase in their benefits to adjust for inflation. Well, by changing the way the CPI was calculated, they ended up with a lower inflation number. And so that means every year they gave Social Security recipients smaller increases. And since the new way of measuring inflation didn't actually cover the increase in the cost of living for the recipients, it really amounted to a cut in Social Security benefits. Because if every year inflation is 4%, but you only get a 1% increase because of a faulty CPI, but you would have got a 4% increase if the government had left the CPI alone, you're basically getting a 3% cut in your social security benefits each year. And so that's basically what happened because no politician wants to cut social security benefits. Nobody wants to vote to do that, but they change the CPI so that the benefits are cut automatically and nobody has to risk the wrath of voters by voting for a cut when the cuts are happening on their own. Now, of course, you know, that's one of the reasons that the living standards keep going down for that age group on a relative basis. It's because their social security checks are actually getting smaller and smaller because they're not really being indexed to the true cost of inflation. They're indexed to the CPI, which doesn't even come close to covering inflation but the big irony is once they rig the CPI so they can cut social security benefits Now, all of a sudden, the Federal Reserve is looking at these numbers and claiming, hey, wait a minute, we don't have enough inflation. Inflation is too low. We need to create more inflation because now we have a problem because inflation is so low. Well, first of all, low inflation is not a problem. In fact, falling prices are better than stable prices. But we never even got falling prices. They were always rising. But the government claimed they weren't rising fast enough when in reality, they were. They were rising faster, except the Federal Reserve was relying on the same rigged CPI data that was used to jip off the people on social security so the government rigs the cpi to understate inflation in order to cut social security benefits and now the federal reserve uses that rigged cpi as an excuse to print even more money under the false pretense that we don't have enough inflation when if the government simply honestly reported it we would actually have more inflation than the fed's so-called target and the fed would be forced to tighten monetary policy instead it eases it and creates even more problem. But it's the guys on Social Security who have been ripped off all these years by COLA payments that didn't adequately reflect the increase in the cost of living. They are now going to get decimated by all the extra inflation that the Federal Reserve was allowed to create because it was hiding behind these doctored CPI numbers. And when this inflation hits and people get wiped out there is no way to get the money back. You know, there is going to be no bailouts. There is going to be no stimulus. When the dollar is crashing, all bets are off because the Fed was able to bail people out after the financial crisis because it could print dollars and give it to them. But if it's a dollar crisis, if inflation is you know, running and the dollar is crashing, what good is a government bailout? All they can do is print more money, but it's not going to have much value. So Everybody is on their own. Everybody has to act preemptively to get out of US dollars. Again, if inflation is a tax, they're taxing your dollars. They're taxing your dollar income streams, your fixed payments. You've got cash value in an insurance policy. You got a fixed annuity, right? All these are dollar payments. They are going to be taxed into oblivion by inflation. And the way you avoid that inflation tax is to get out of U.S. dollars, cash in those investments, take the cash value out of your insurance policy, surrender that annuity, cash it out, take the money that's there now and turn it into something real to avoid that inflation tax. And real being equities. I think most money should be in global equities. Yeah, a lot of those equities should be mining stocks or other companies that specifically benefit from rising commodity prices, which are gonna be the primary beneficiaries of this massive inflation. But you just wanna own real assets around the world that pay good dividends in currencies that will appreciate against the dollar, where the companies have good pricing power so that if there's inflation in their local markets, they can raise the prices, which means they can raise the dividends that are paid out to the shareholders there's a lot of assets around the world that you can buy now with dollars that will be worth very little in the future. If you wait too long, you won't be able to buy these assets because you won't be able to afford to because the purchasing power of your currency, your savings would have been wiped out. You know, a lot of clients at Euro Pacific Cap, a lot of my clients, they have a certain portion of their portfolio allocated to my strategy, to international equities, to commodities, to gold. They have a larger allocation to more conventional investments in domestic stocks and bonds. Now is not the time to have that type of diversification. I think you really want to minimize your exposure to the U.S. dollar and maximize your international exposure. You want to really start to take down your domestic allocation. Your domestic bond allocation should be zero, as should your domestic cash allocation. If you want to have some U.S. stocks, as long as you're concentrated on the multinationals, the ones that export, you can own those. But I still think that the valuations of the foreign stocks are still so much more compelling and the dividend yield so much higher. I can't even see a rationale for maintaining a weight in the U.S. stocks when you have so much better opportunities and so much better values in the international market. But this is where people should really be reducing their domestic exposure, reducing their exposure to the inflation tax and sending more money into their Euro Pacific capital accounts to increase their international allocation, their non-dollar allocation. And of course, if you've been listening to this podcast and you haven't even opened up an account, you haven't even begun to do this. If you're still sitting with a conventional portfolio of US stocks and bonds, you can't wait any longer. Time is running out. I'm looking at all of the evidence, all the economic data, all of the market signals that I'm seeing, and we are very, very close, I think, to a big move. In fact, what's happening, I think, in cryptocurrencies, in Bitcoin in particular, I think is another warning sign to see the Bitcoin bubble pop, to see all the air coming out of it. You know, earlier in the week, I think it was Sunday night, Monday morning, uh, Bitcoin didn't quite make it down to 30,000. It got down to about 31,000. Ether, though, took out its crash low from last Wednesday. Its low was at 1850, and I think it went all the way down to about 1700, something like that. Now, we had a pretty decent rally from those lows. As I'm recording this podcast, Bitcoin is back at 38,000 and ether has run all the way back up to 2600 but remember the highs for ether was over 4000 and the high for bitcoin was about 65000 so we are still deep in bear market territory and i think the fact that the air is coming out of these bubbles this again is a sign that investors are losing confidence in risk assets, that they're trying to speculate less. They want to take some chips off the table. We're seeing this in other risk assets. But because Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are riskier than most assets and have less liquidity, you're starting to see bigger moves there first, right? This is, you know, the canary in the coal mine. And we've seen this before. In fact, early when we had the big drop in March because of COVID, it was the Bitcoin market that imploded first. And then the stock market imploded second. I don't think we're going to see a major implosion in the big averages. But what we're going to see is beneath the surface, we're going to continue to see this movement from momentum into value, from hype into reality. And that's going to include the movement out of cryptocurrencies and fool's gold into real gold and out of U.S. dollars into currencies that will be perceived as being more stable, whether it's the euro, the yen, or or other smaller currencies that are issued by central banks that are in countries that are not as financially insolvent as the United States. So look at all of these signs all of these warning signs these flashing signs that so many people in the mainstream are ignoring and again they ignore the signs because they don't know what to look for they don't realize that we're living in a bubble they don't understand how badly the fed screwed up the u.s economy they have believed all the nonsense that's why they were so blindsided by the 2008 financial crisis because they didn't understand the precarious nature of the phony economy. And that's why they believe the Fed solved the problem, even though the Fed made the problem worse, because they didn't understand the problem in the first place. So if they didn't understand the problem, how are they going to understand the solution? They don't. And they don't realize that the economy is in far worse shape now than it was back then. In fact, the damage related to COVID-19 is much worse because of the government's response then the disease itself, what has really hurt the economy is the government's COVID cure. It is all that money spending, all that deficit spending, all the money printing that has damaged the economy. Yes, COVID damaged it too. I'm not saying that COVID didn't do damage. It did. But then the government compounded the damage with its policy response. And even though the economy is just starting to reopen as more and more people are vaccinated, we still have the deal with all the stimulus. The stimulus is still here. That's not going away. There is no vaccine uh, for all this government stimulus, all the deficits, all the inflation. In fact, this stuff is continuing. In fact, because the Fed inflated such a massive bubble during COVID, they're now forced to fill that bubble with more and more air to prevent the complete implosion of the economy. The collapse would be a lot worse now than it would have been had the government done nothing in response to COVID and let the recession run its course. Of course, the recession was already going to be bad because of all the economic imbalances that had been built up over the years because we didn't swallow our medicine following the 2008 financial crisis. So had we done the right thing back then, we would have been in better position to ride out COVID. But because they did the wrong thing then, they were forced to double down and make an even bigger mistake now. Well, the the years of can kicking have come to an end And all of the warning signs, I think, are validating this argument. And by the way, the reason that they were able to get this big rally in Bitcoin, right, is you had all the big guys, Michael Saylor, Elon Musk, you know, they got together. Supposedly, they called some kind of meeting with all the North American cryptocurrency miners and they're trying to organize something to try to satisfy Elon Musk's concerns about uh, the energy and the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining. I mean, I guess they had this massive ass kissing event uh, where all the miners were trying to kiss Elon Musk's ass. So he would tweet something positive about Bitcoin and send the price up. And obviously, the price started rallying before the tweet because I think some of the bigger players who were in on the meeting and knew what was going to happen, they tried to front run the Elon Musk tweet by buying Bitcoin before the tweet so they can dump into the pump, which is exactly what happened. I mean, Bitcoin got up around 40000 and then sold back off, you know, back into thirty-six thousand and change, but all this is a bunch of nonsense. There is no way to solve this problem. Mining Bitcoin is extremely expensive and it's gonna take a lot of energy. And even if they try to substitute clean energy as opposed to fossil fuels, you know, burning coal, if they try to do the whole thing and make it green and use solar and use wind power, I guess Elon Musk would love that if he could sell all the Bitcoin miners' batteries that Tesla can produce. But what's going to happen to the extent that fewer Bitcoins are mined in China using fossil fuels? And more are mined in North America with alternative energy sources. All that's going to do is increase the cost of mining Bitcoin. It's going to be even more expensive. We're going to waste even more resources. And then the cost of actually using Bitcoin, which is already prohibitively high, is going to be more expensive. So it's going to make Bitcoin even less viable as a medium of exchange than it is today. I mean, the reason that it doesn't cost even more money to mine Bitcoin is because they're mining it in China. I mean, why do the Chinese have an advantage in Bitcoin mining? because they have lower energy costs. So more Bitcoin are mined in countries that have lower energy costs. Well, if we take China out of the mix and we say, hey, we're gonna try to mine Bitcoin without China, and we're gonna try to mine it in a more environmentally friendly manner, well, it's just gonna dramatically increase the cost of mining Bitcoin and operating the network, making it even less efficient than it is today. And it already is too expensive to use relative to all the other payment mechanisms. And then, of course, everybody says, well, you know, we don't actually have to use Bitcoin as a currency. It doesn't have to be a medium of exchange. It doesn't have to be a unit of account. It's just going to be a store of value, right? That's the fallback position. It's a store of value. It's like gold, except it's nothing like gold because gold actually has value that can be stored. Bitcoin has no value. Arguably, it has a use in that I can use it as a medium of exchange, but if you admit that you can't use it as a medium of exchange because it's too expensive and too volatile, and then the only thing you can do is hold it, hold it for what? You're not holding it for anything, right? When I'm storing my gold, I'm storing it to be used in the future by a jeweler who's going to make jewelry out of it or a chip manufacturer who's going to conduct electricity with it. You know, Nobody's going to do anything with a Bitcoin. And I think people are figuring that out. I think this... This movement up, this big rally based on a tweet from Elon Musk, is going to backfire. It's just going to shine another light on how ridiculous this whole market is if it lives and dies by a tweet from Elon Musk. So you're going to go and you're going to put real money into Bitcoin and then hope and pray that Elon Musk doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed and decide to send out a negative tweet, and now your investment has lost 20% of its value. Look, I think a lot of the institutions that came late to the party are already looking to leave. They're probably going to sell into this rally. It's not about buying the dips for these guys. It's selling the rips. It's, hey, let me get a bounce. Let me get out. I'm going to look for something else. And I think the institutions that thought about joining the party are thankful that they didn't. They may have been toying with the idea, but now it's completely off the radar. They're not going to be buying. They're going to be looking for something else. And the something else that they're going to find is going to be gold. If people were thinking about buying Bitcoin because they thought they needed a hedge against inflation, now they're going to know they need to hedge against inflation, but they're not going to be buying Bitcoin. They're going to be buying gold. They're going to be buying silver. But what I want is for my audience to buy it first. It was interesting, too, that despite this steady strength that we had all day, really, in gold and silver, we didn't see that type of strength in the mining stocks. I mean, the mining stocks were down pretty solid this morning when gold prices were lower. But as gold turned positive and went higher throughout the day, some of the gold stocks managed to regain their losses, but they really didn't put in big gains. And in fact, some of the major gold stocks actually finished the day down and in fact the gdx was barely positive on the day weighed down by some of the larger stocks like newmont that was down over one percent on the day barrack was down about a half a percent look at yamana gold today down one and a half percent again this despite a near twenty dollar rise in the price of gold that put it up near a you know 1900 level I think one of the reasons that gold stocks didn't rise is because traders are reluctant to buy because they think we're nearing a top. They're looking at this $1,900 level and assuming the price of gold is going to sell off. And so- you're not seeing this confirmation of the move to 1900 by the gold stocks. And a lot of people may read this as a bearish sign, meaning that the gold stocks, since they're not confirming the move, that the move is gonna be rejected. And what this weakness in the gold stocks today is indicating is that we're gonna see a sell-off in gold, that gold's not going to rise above 1900, and that the gold traders are correctly predicting a decline in the price of gold. Well, I'm dismissing that. I think what's happening is that these gold traders are still in denial. Everybody expects the price of gold to sell off because after all, inflation is transitory and the Fed's going to be raising interest rates and everybody knows this is bearish for gold. I think the fact that the traders are not buying gold and they're expecting the price to go down, to me, this is a good contrarian confirmation that the price is gonna keep going up. And what it also means is when the price of gold surprises people by going through 1900 In fact, I think we're going to go through 2000 very quickly. Then there's going to be a lot of catching up to do. I think a lot of people who expected the price of gold to go down, who are surprised by how much it goes up, they're going to have to rush in to buy the gold stocks. And so the prices are going to go up even more, which is a small window of opportunity still for my clients to put more money into gold stocks either directly by owning the stocks themselves. And we have gold stocks in all of our strategies. But also I specifically have a gold fund, the Euro Pacific Capital Gold Fund. And so if you really want to maximize the benefit from this gold move and you want to do it with the mining stocks, then this is a good time to be getting more money into my goal fund. And again, you can talk to any of the representatives at Euro Pacific Capital to get information on my goal fund, on whether it's suitable for you, how to buy it. You can also get information about the fund by going directly to their website at epacepacfunds.com, and all my funds are listed on the website. But in particular, you can read about the goal fund. And you could buy it. And by the way, my gold fund and all of my funds are available at discount brokerage firms throughout the country. So you don't necessarily have to have an account with me to buy my funds. Although I prefer that people have an account directly with us so they can work with the representatives who really understand our strategy and can help better craft a portfolio, right? Help you put together a more diversified portfolio in line with my strategy. If you want to do it yourself, you can. The important thing is that you're in my funds because wherever you own my funds, my team is still managing them here from Puerto Rico. So even if they're not with Europe Pacific or with Lions Global Partners, you can have my funds at Charles Schwab, you can have them at Fidelity, you can have them at any of these brokerage accounts and we're still managing the portfolio. The key is now is to get in to these mining stocks before the next big move, before the people who are selling these stocks now because they expect the price of gold to fall before they start buying them when they're surprised at how much higher the price goes.